Alrighty, everybody. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian, joined again by Kevin Olson. Good to see you guys again. And we are, again, recording in the flesh. Love doing this. Way easier than over Zoom. But we've got some good stories for you through the month of March 2022 over your favorite basins. If you're new to this segment, hey, this is one of our most popular podcasts. We hit you with the biggest news stories of the month over some of the most popular basins, and this month we're going to kick it off with the Bakken, where Exxon's mining Bitcoin in an attempt to try and slash their emissions. And this is a move that oil and gas producers across the country are coming up with, and it's a creative way to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in the face of tightening regulations. One of the worst offending gases is methane, typically burned off as a byproduct to create CO2 instead when it's uneconomic to collect. Exxon's latest plan to find a use for the gas is to use it as a fuel for their joint venture with Crusoe Energy Systems to mine Bitcoin. Not only does burning this gas cause environmental damage, but it also accounts for lost revenue. This is quite literally free energy. Exxon hopes to turn what is otherwise a cost into a revenue stream while also reaching climate goals. And hey, we've talked about this before. It's a great move. I think it's probably going to become standard within about a year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that we started seeing about a year ago um, when the first players were really kind of trying to explore this technology. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Tavis. This is definitely something that's not going away. I mean, cryptocurrency, it's not going away. Um, You know, some might even say, you know, it's the way of the future. Um, And, you know, our climate goals, those also not going away. So why not, kind of like you said, you're just giving away free energy. How about we use this and then kind of create a new revenue source? So I do think that it's it's going to take some time for the adaptation and kind of the, the startup process, but it, it's certainly, like you said, the way of the future. But let's talk about North Dakota's sound off on plans to curb methane emissions. Proposed changes to the Environmental Protection Agency's federal regulations aimed at greatly reducing methane emissions by the oil and gas sector has sparked opposition in North Dakota. Environmentalists argue far more frequent emission inspections, while the North Dakota Petroleum Council argues for more flexibility within states to decide how these inspections are designed. The three affiliated tribes simply don't want new regulations to hinder production of tribal trust minerals. Nothing is final yet. However, the EPA, under Biden's new direction, will soon make a decision on the matter. What do you think will be the final frontier of oil and gas in the states? Because it seems, I mean, maybe I'm just some old conservative guy at heart, but everyone's going the way of California and sort of tightening regulations and making things more strict. Not always a bad thing, but what do you think is going to be uh, the the basin where the last true unruly people live? I definitely think it's going to be, you know, maybe not necessarily the Bakken, but either the Bakken or Texas. Texas, that's that's the (laughs) go-to. That's kind of what I I, I see this. But, I mean, in fairness, um, there's only so much that you can really clamp down on these regulations before things just... It's not economical to produce anymore, and or people are going to walk away. Time. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it, it's definitely steps in the right direction, but kind of like you said, you wonder how far is too far. You know, we, we see what's happening down in California, and now we're seeing, you know, gas prices spiking everywhere, and people are furious about that. It's like, well, you, you can't have both. Um, it's it's kind of one or the other, and and I certainly think that there need to be more strict uh, climate goals and climate policy. Sure, but you know. I think it needs to be more of a, a slow process than a California where it's just, eh, kick out oil and gas from the state. <laughs> I agree. Speaking of policy, we've got a new topic that is exceedingly gray. Poor space. 
What lawyer Derek Brayton has described as, quote, some of the most complicated law I have ever encountered, end quote, is becoming a hot topic in North Dakota. I believe we talked about this sometime last year. Pore space or the small cavities within rock is becoming increasingly useful. Current uses of pore space include saltwater injections, CO2 injection, and natural gas injection or storage, which, you know, is valuable for some people. Now that the utility of pore space has been realized, landowners who are leasing their land to oil and gas producers want in on what may become a growing market space. Law surrounding the topic will decide whether landowners have to fight leases themselves or if there will be law to help back them up in court. And hey, I gotta say I get it. Before, poor space was just, it was empty, it was nothing, it was negative, it was zero. No value there. But now that you can store stuff into it, I see why the leasees want more value out of it, but I think ringing out a couple extra percent or <laughs> that's going to be the hardest part of this. Absolutely. And and there's certainly other, you know, um, kind of avenues for this in the sense of, all right, so maybe we can CO inject some CO2 here, you know, start marching towards those climate goals while utilizing kind of like you said, dead space really. Um, but what is start going to be interesting is, okay, you know, maybe who's going to get that carbon credit? Is it that landowner that maybe has cows and um, he can say, oh, I can have a couple extra cows because, you know, cows give off methane emissions. And that that is something that we have talked about in the past. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see really the direction that this takes. And, and I do wonder if it is going to come down to the landowners or if it's going to be something more of, you know, oh, there's, you know, a group of lawyers that kind of have your back and there's going to be new law put into place. So I guess kind of one of those stories where only time will tell. This is true, but I think that wraps up everything we've got for the Bakken. Kevin, what are we looking at in the Permian Basin? Well, Tav, it's funny you ask because aerial leak detection technology is gaining regulatory approval in New Mexico. LiDAR technology is slowly making its way into all sorts of industries, and oil and gas companies are the latest to find useful applications for the new tech. Stringent emission regulations are spurring innovation and the way leak detection and repair is being done. New Mexico's Energy Department approved the use of aerial gas mapping LIDAR technologies within the state. According to the department, quote, operators can use the emissions detected by such technologies to earn credits that offset a portion of an operator's total annual volume of lost gas, end quote. The tech can also be used to help producers comply with newly federally mandated EPA regulations and is bound to be popular in states across the country and I think that last segment there is really what's important is this is going to become popular in every state. This is, again, kind of like the Bitcoin mining. This is something that's just it's a great technology that is easily implementable and it's moving towards those climate goals without really a whole lot of, you know, kind of upstart to get this technology involved. And I think a lot of this is being driven by that Build Back Better bill because there was tons of environmentally related things for pipelines specifically Lots of it being emissions from old legacy lines that are breaking down. So, hey, you're right. This is just coming around the bend and you better get used to it or get out. Next, producers in the Permian Basin in Texas use the land that they lease to not only extract precious commodities, but also to inject waste products such as saltwater, carbon dioxide, you know the drill. Recent seismic activity in certain areas has made it apparent that injection wells can cause earthquakes up to a magnitude of four and a half as seen in Stanton, West Texas last year. Operators asked the RRC to allow them to come up with a response plan. Injection wells in certain counties have been suspended until an adequate plan is in place. Should the operator's plan fail, the RRC has stated it will have to intervene in the construction of a new one to curb 
further earthquakes. So I think this was a story that kicked off about three months ago, right? Because first there was it, Oklahoma, it did, yep. and now we're in Texas. So I'm actually quite surprised the RRC is in two months' time, not really come up with much of anything. I know that's me oversimplifying it, but they better come up with something quick. Absolutely. I mean, because the thing is, I mean, what else are you going to do with all your extra salt water? I mean, it's uh, you're still it your producing. Garage? Yeah, <laughs> where up? is it supposed to go? Um, so this is certainly something that you would think that over the course of the past couple months, especially in a place down in Texas where there's so much production happening, there's so much you know extra salt water that they have to dispose of somehow. It's starting to be one of those. All right, they just you know filling up you know these excess tanks all over the place and kind of playing the waiting game. So I do agree with you. It's a little odd that, um, especially a place down like Texas, hasn't figured this out. But I can almost guarantee you when push comes to shove, they're going to figure something out here pretty quick. But up next, oil and gas companies are joining a fight against nuclear waste facilities down in the Permian Basin. Nuclear waste from energy plants around the country have found their new home. Sites in both Texas and New Mexico, where oil and gas operations are currently active, may soon find themselves competing for land with companies such as Holtec International and Waste Control Specialists who have been granted licenses to store the waste in that area. Thousands of metric tons of spent nuclear waste rods would make their way to both sites, which some say could otherwise be used for producing oil in a time where the world market supply is decreasing. The Permian Basin Coalition is a group of dozens of counties oil and gas companies, and other organizations spearheading the movement against these products. Call me a negative Nancy, but why, why is this special? You could have just buried these anywhere, right? Is it just because the land is uninhabited and it's a big desert area? I think that's really the reason. I mean, when you think of oil-producing areas out in Texas, it's kind mm. of in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot of people out there, which is probably why this is a prime um, target, if you will, for um, these companies that want to store spent nuclear waste. There's not people out there, then they don't have as many concerns of, oh, you know, radiation yeah, poisoning. I, and I the built like. my elementary school on top of an old, you know, nuclear waste <laughs> and dump. All and the kids have three arms. Exactly. So, um, but the interesting thing is, I mean, at least for most of these operators, they have a very small surface footprint and I feel like they could easily work together. Um, I don't well know. Spacing and nuclear waste spacing overlapping. Yeah, I mean, that would be pretty cool, but it seems like something that really wouldn't be that difficult to kind of find a middle ground between the two. So I am wondering where this is going to end up going, but it seems like they should be able to find some kind of middle ground here. And that's all we've got for the Permian, but we wouldn't be doing Texas justice if we were to ignore the Eagleford. So real quick, one story for you. Increased prices at the pump have a direct relationship to the cost of a barrel of oil. That's no secret. Producers in Texas are taking advantage of the price of oil by exploring and drilling for more oil. Makes sense. Commodity prices are up. You can be economic in new areas. B County Commissioner Dennis DeWitt in southern Texas commented, quote, We're in the process of a mini-lease boom, if you will, here in B County. End quote. It's not only the small operators. ConocoPhillips drilled a new well in Eagleford, too. Many counties in the area are looking forward to increased mineral and oil revenues on the back of high oil prices, although they're staying cautiously optimistic in such a volatile market. And who can blame them after we see price collapse to, what, negative 40-some dollars in 2020? What's to say that can't happen again? So I am excited to see activity in the Eagleford, but I'm kind of with everyone else. They're just holding their breath, waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah, and, and this story is certainly no surprise. I mean, we've seen our rig counts increasing Pretty much every single week for about the past two yeah. years now. 
Um, so it's definitely kind of in this commodity upcycle. And it is good to see that, you know, it's not just areas like the Permian, the, you know, the big guys that, you know, can attract all the drilling rigs, but it's, it's areas kind of like where the, the smaller producers, kind of the, the underdogs, if you will, um, in the Eagle Fert are getting some attention. So it is, like Tavis said, good to see, and, and hopefully we can continue to experience growth down in this basin. And with the close out of that basin, we are now finished with Texas. Move it on up to somewhere I'm real fond of, Kevin, too, Colorado in the DJ and Niobrara basins, where a 2020 Colorado ruling has limited drilling near homes to be at least 2,000 feet away. All of you probably remember that. Occidental has recently sought an exemption to that rule to drill in Firestone within 800 feet of the nearest home. The request was denied by the COGCC due to it being too close to residential homes. I mean, 800 feet, yeah, that, that is pretty close. But, I mean, if the people have no problem with it, I see no problem. The Firestone site also has some unfortunate history with the industry. If you weren't aware, in 2017, Anadarko Petroleum was responsible for an explosion that resulted in the death of two people, an event that is sure to dissuade residents in the area to be open to more drilling. So I can't say I'm surprised that the COGCC denied it. It's an incredibly sensitive uh, topic for them, and I'm really surprised Occidental, being the company who absorbed Anadarko, was really bold enough to make that request. Well, and, and Tavis, I think kind of at the tail end there, you kind of hit on a very important thing. Maybe they were trying to really kind of push the envelope to see, okay, how strict is this 2,000-foot setback? I mean, granted, personally, I think I would have started with something like, mm, I don't know, 1,500 feet? Right. Something where, yes, you're you're inside that 2,000-foot zone. But, I mean, 1,500 feet, that's still over a quarter mile. I mean, think how far away that really is. Think yeah, about plenty an outdoor track stretched out. I mm. mean, that is plenty, plenty far. So while I am not really that um, surprised that the COGCC denied an only 800-foot setback, mm-hmm. um, I think they were just maybe trying to, Dip push their the toes envelope. in the water. Exactly, <laughs> and, and kind of see what the response was. And maybe they even um, had approval from the community that, oh, no, yeah, you can drill here. Um, but maybe the COGCC is kind of really hard and firm on, nope, 2,000-foot setback. That's, you know, our regulation. And maybe that will change in the future, but um, kind of like you said, not too surprising on this story. But up next, let's talk more about our oil regulators here in Colorado who just approved the strongest in the nation financial rules. The COGCC has voted to adopt a new set of rules for the state that will greatly increase the number of bonds producers are going to have to provide to cover the potential costs of cleaning up wells. Large producers who are at a low risk of bankruptcy will be required to provide bond amounts of $1,500 per well and smaller, more riskier producers, $110,000 per well. Fees for producers will also increase to create a fund of millions of dollars that will be used to clean up abandoned wells. The COGCC is proud to announce that the new regulations are, quote, the strongest in the nation. Man, I tell you, I'm conflicted about this because, yeah, it makes sense. Your ExxonMobil's, your ConocoPhillips, they're more often than not going to properly get this abandoned because if they don't, they know all eyes will be on them. They already have regulators up their pants. But the smaller, riskier producers, I mean, $110,000 per well extra is a lot to ask for a small to mid-cap company. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think it sort of limits competition between the big boys and the smaller ones. And it's also, I will say, I do like that the fees for producers, they're collecting those to put that into a budget that they can draw on for abandonments. That makes sense to me, but I do worry that small to mid-cap companies will struggle to compete. 
I agree. And it's, it is truly unfortunate because, you know, we've always been, at least here in Colorado, tried to really encourage the small guys, you know, like, oh, you know, you know, come and there's going to be opportunities for, for everyone here. But instead it kind of seems like we're punishing the little guys because they don't have the portfolio behind them. They don't have the large backing, but I mean, in fairness though, it does make sense. You nailed it, Tavis. I mean, an Exxon Mobil can just pull out their bank account and say, yep, here's the check for all this. Whereas a smaller producer, you know, if they have to go in and abandon, you know, four wells, that might put them out of business. So um, it is unfortunate in that sense, but it, I think it does make sense in the long run. And to wrap it up for this basin, Colorado producers maintain low reinvestment levels despite soaring oil prices. This is something we really see across the country. Savitas is the newest producer to tell their investors their focus is on returning the most capital. In reaching that goal, Savitas CEO Ben Dell has said the company won't change the plan they have already laid out for the year in spite of $100 a barrel oil. There are about 1,900 approved permits to drill in the DJ Basin. However, a volatile market and other restrictions make it uneconomic for producers to complete them, hence the general trend in the state to take small steps in bringing that number down. And if you've listened to this podcast at all, you understand that this has sort of been the trend in the past year. We learned from the past the mistakes of 2014. Instead of drill baby drill, it's pay down debt, and return cash to investors. And so far, it's been working, and we haven't seen insane growth in rig counts or production. So I'm, I think this is probably par for the course for most people right now. Absolutely. And, and kind of like you said, like slow, steady growth right now. is It's definitely a growth mindset. It, it's not time for anyone to really be conservative with the way prices are right now because who knows? In six months, maybe oil's back down to you know $20 a barrel to which – then everyone has to be conservative. So they kind of have to expand their portfolio, but in a responsible manner to where they're, it's sustained growth and not maybe not just these leaps and bounds kind of growth. And then next up, we take it to Wyoming in the Powder River Basin. Oil and gas leasing has been put on pause in Wyoming for many months. We've heard Governor Gordon voice his displeasure on that. And a long-awaited federal court ruling now allows the Biden administration to push play again. Wyoming oil and gas producers are still recovering from whiplash brought on by the federal government back and forth decisions on how to run the leasing program. On March 18th, 2022, the courts took into account the social cost of carbon and set that amount at $50 per ton, up from $10 under the Trump administration. With clear guidelines in place, the administration has said it will resume leasing auctions for oil and gas development on federal lands, and I think so far only one has happened. 20% the size of normal and 50% higher royalty rates. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of these to where I think the most important takeaway of this story, though, is resuming leases again in Wyoming. And because this is so important for Wyoming's economy. I mean, so much of this is based on oil and gas production. It's based on fossil fuel production. And the fact that these leasing sales weren't happening, it was really hurting the state. So I think while... Maybe the numbers weren't quite where we wanted them to be or, or where we thought they were going to be. I think it's at least steps in the right direction. Up next, oil and gas rebate bill dies in committee. Wyoming is one of the more resource-rich states, supplying the rest of the country with oil, gas, and various mine minerals. A committee within the state met to decide the future of a rebate bill for businesses in the oil and gas industry as well as the mining industry. Named Senate File 84, the bill was designed to change state-level taxes to aid the industry workers who are already being taxed quite a bit. It should also help the state be a more attractive state for prospective businesses. 
The bill was ultimately put on hold for a year due to an expected increase in federal royalty rates, and once more is known on that front, the bill can be changed in accordance. I love this idea. Hopefully it brings business to the state, relaxes the taxation on some of these people who are looking to get more business done. So I'm excited to see what happens. Next, Wyoming is going to receive $23.9 million in electric vehicle infrastructure funds. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Law Bill, or the BIL, has already been put to use in various ways around the country. Wyoming is set to receive about $24 million from the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure, NEVI, which falls under the BIL. The money from NEVI will be used mainly to build electric vehicle charging stations all around the state. The charging stations will run on Wyoming power and will help to turn the highways in the state into alternative fuel corridors. But that sounds very funny to me because Wyoming is such a home to coal and oil. And honestly, that is what is being used to generate the power. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it is kind of interesting. That it has to happen eventually, though. I, yeah, I see where they're going. It, with a state that's so heavily um, invested in the oil and gas industry, it's interesting that they're using so much of these funds to build um, kind of a an EV network, if you will. But I agree with you, Tavis. This is the way that things are going. And I mean, luckily enough, Wyoming does produce a lot of its electricity via natural gas. Granted, there's also a lot of coal being produced in Wyoming, which hopefully that can be phased back, um, especially if these um, the federal leasing on for oil and gas continues to resume. Maybe more oil and gas production, more natural gas production, maybe more natural gas generated electricity that will then be used to kind of fuel these cars to kind of start that transition mm -hmm. moving forward. That about rounds out all of our stories for everything up in Wyoming. So we're going to move it over to Oklahoma, specifically those scoop stack basins, where the historic Kaiser's Grateful Bean Cafe in Oklahoma City added a free electric vehicle charging station in its parking lot, something that's becoming more and more popular, not only in the state, but nationwide. Oklahomans such as Pete Schaefer, who owns the cafe, hope to be part of a movement towards electric vehicles in the state. The first part of the plan to electrify Oklahoma's roadways is focused on EV charging stations, reducing range anxiety in potential buyers. Oklahoma has already begun this part of the plan and is number one in the nation in per capita level three charging stations, the quickest type. Next up, making the power at those stations greener. I had no idea that Oklahoma was leading in per capita level three charging stations before this story, but hey, good for them. I guess it's lots of oil money people getting electric vehicles. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's just interesting that we just talked about this, um, kind of this really renewed interest, maybe not renewed interest, mm -hmm. but it focus on um, EV charging stations because it's, it's certainly where things are headed. Um, but you're right. It is interesting that Oklahoma, of all places, is, you know, number one per capita. I would think, what would your guess be? I would guess I don't know, somewhere California. closer to like Washington State. Oh, maybe, <laughs> may, yeah, maybe something like that. So, I mean, good on Oklahoma and, and hopefully they can keep up that continued level of growth. But enough talk on EV chargers. Let's talk about a bill to repair roads used by the oil and gas industry that just passed the Oklahoma House. The oil and gas industry is known for many things, both good and bad. Rather unknown is the damaging effects it tends to have on small town roadways near oil fields. Legislation that just passed in Oklahoma aims to fix these damages with an annual fund of $5 million. Municipalities with less than 15,000 people will be eligible to apply for the money and will receive it based on an assessment of how bad their road conditions truly are. The money for the fund will come from the existing road dye diesel sales tax and matched 25% by the municipality requesting the funds. 
this is very strange because I don't know, at least in my mind, how do you justify what damage is caused by who? I, if they're spilling crude all over the asphalt, then yeah, that's a problem. But it seems strange that they've said, all right, this is your fault. Maybe because of heavy machinery? I don't really know. It's really, yeah, it is. It's it's the heavy machinery. It's the big pump trucks. It's, I mean, any kind of oil field type truck is some kind of, you know, F-350 or bigger. I mean, these trucks are massive and they do tear up these roads. Um, I do think it's interesting that, okay, how can you say that it was necessarily um, the oil and gas industry that totally, you know, destroyed these roads as opposed to, okay, well, semi-truckers are probably using those, you know, to get goods from A to B, you know, you still have grocery stores and municipalities with less than 15,000 people. They still need a, a lot of that infrastructure in there. But at the same time, the funds are coming from an already existing diesel sales tax. So it's not like, you know, they're going to these oil and gas companies saying, all right, you need to front this $5 yeah, million dollar yeah, fund. Um, but hey, I mean, it, this is definitely an issue in, in those smaller towns. So it's, it's nice to see that, okay, um, instead of creating more of a headache, they're saying, all right, how can we work together, um, use something that we've already got to kind of smoothen quite literally our roads. And we're closing in on our last few basins. Next up will be the Marcellus Shale Basin, where some experts want Pennsylvania lawmakers to rethink temporary gas tax cuts. Cutting state taxes on gas is a popular move around the country as state-level governments try to find a way to help bring the price of gas down for their constituents. In Pennsylvania, lawmakers are deciding on whether to drop the state gas tax from 58 cents to 39 cents. This would result in, one, less revenue for the state, but it is proposed that those losses are replaced with the $1.15 billion available in federal pandemic relief funds and bonds. This is money that would eventually have to be paid back, but would help in reducing the rising gas prices in the near future. Critics of the plan cite the net loss in money meant less for road and bridge repairs and even for state police, which are totally valid concerns. So I, I don't think I know enough about public policy to really say what I think about this. But Well, the, the interesting thing is, it, I mean, it's only going to drop from 58 cents to 39 cents. I mean, your average consumer, 20 cents on the gallon, I mean... It's, it's really not very much. It's 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 still a high gas price. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and while do I like when I can go over and, and get discounted fuel points when I go and fuel up my car? Absolutely. But that drop from 58 cents to 39 cents, you know, that mere 19 cents right there, I don't think it's going to make enough of a difference to where the gap that it's going to create and then with this money that they're going to have to pay back down the road, it just kind of seems like, you're really creating more problems than actually solving these problems. So um, I'm kind of with you, Tavis. I don't know enough about these policies to kind of have a more informed decision than that, but kind of at a surface level, that's really what's striking me. But Tavis, I got a question for you. Is Pennsylvania the answer to the world's current energy crisis? Maybe I'm a pessimist again. I, I say no, but they can certainly help. <laughs> it's a big load to shoulder. Well, Biden's ban on Russian oil imports leaves room for someone else to step in. And while some think the answer lies with Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, Pennsylvania thinks, why not us? Of all the gas-producing states in the U.S., Pennsylvania is the second largest. Supporters of the plan to ramp up production within the state to meet demand cite that reliance on countries with values other than America's is a poor idea. Critics, on the other hand, say that Pennsylvania is not going to be able to meet the demand that was met by Russia. The state's peak production was about 7 million barrels per day a year, 
a number far less than the 245 million barrels supplied by Russia. Okay, so that's kind of what I was thinking about it. 7 million for 245 really isn't anything. But if there is a shortage, hell, there's ports on the East Coast that could go straight to Europe. Well, assuming the infrastructure is capable of dealing with that capacity, which we know it's not. But there is a role for Pennsylvania to play. They could totally benefit from this. I mean, kind of like you said, Tavis, it's a drop in the bucket, but hey, at least it is a drop in the bucket. <laughs> a drop in the bucket is better than a dry bucket. But next, Ohio's fracking industry, Boone is promised or something less. A report written in 2012 by Cleveland State University proposed an optimistic future for Ohio's oil and gas industry over the following two years. The report predicted the addition of 66,000 jobs and $5 billion a year to the state's economy. Hey, them's good numbers. Now that the numbers are in, how did the state do? One estimate attributes 200,000 jobs and $90.6 billion to the industry, whether that be directly and indirectly related. Some say the jobs created by oil and gas projects are short-lived due to the high amount of workers needed up front compared to the far fewer needed to keep the operations running in the long run. Either way, it seems the industry has far exceeded 2012 predictions in terms of jobs created and revenue generated. And yeah, it's difficult to look at these things, especially when you say something's indirectly related. But still, what is that, Twenty, almost 20-fold more money than they expected and three times the jobs? Certainly it did something. And it's not necessarily super short term. I mean, we're talking about 10 years here. That's not like, you know, oh, they went out and hired 200,000 people for a month-long job. No, that was sustained over the course of 10 years. So um, while those jobs, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as many as they were, um, than they estimate, but it's still a very significant um, growth for the industry. And, and hopefully they can keep that train on going. And ladies and gentlemen, we have finally gotten to the end. We will talk about California. So Santa Barbara County rejected a proposal from ExxonMobil to allow it to transport oil coming from its offshore ventures via tanker truck. Had the company allowed the proposal, it would have been the first major step to restarting three oil platforms offshore owned by Exxon operating off the coast. The pipeline that would have otherwise transported the oil ruptured in 2015, causing offshore operations to be, you guessed it, suspended. Refusal to allow Exxon to use tanker trucks to transport oil was based on environmental concerns, such as adding an additional 24,820 annually on the 101 freeway and Highway 166 for several years until the pipeline was fixed. And honestly, as someone who's driven in California, that was probably a good move. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing. Tanker trucks are not a very safe or reliable way to transport this oil. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think Santa Barbara County made the right choice here. While I certainly think that and hope that they'll be able to restart those three platforms, I think they're going to have to do it once that pipeline is fixed. Up next, Dem leaders seem to be on board as Newsom proposes gas money for Californians. The price of gasoline is expensive everywhere lately, something Californians are especially aware of, average being $5.44 per gallon in March. Part of Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to help those living in California is to get rid of the state gas tax, and another part includes a $400 per car refund to California vehicle owners up to a maximum of $800. The latter proposal seems to have gained more support than the former. Cutting the gas tax may be harder to implement, which means benefits may not reach consumers for a few months that are struggling now. What the hell is this? Just I, free money for, I don't know, things are expensive. Again, maybe I'm just an old conservative dude at heart, but why is 
gas prices, always one of the primary issues politicians focus on? Uh, because I think it's just something that everyone can kind of recognize and understand. You know, if someone says, you know, oh, the barrel of, you know, cost of a barrel of oil went up. A lot of people have no concept of what that means to them. But for people who drive cars every single day and might have to fill up, you know, some people fill up daily, some people fill up weekly, you know, some people only monthly. But it's something that everyone kind of has a, a nice baseline to. But I'm with you, Tavis. Like, really? Just going to give out $400 per car because gas is expensive? Like, I got to go buy me some more cars. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but only only a maximum of 800 yeah, It can't cost more than that. I'll take junkers, though. Give me all your lemons. I need this this California money. Last Our last story, a U.S. refinery strike could add to factors driving up gas prices. A refinery in the Bay Area who is responsible for 13% of the state's gas, jet fuel, and other oil products may be responsible for driving California gas prices even higher as its workers go on strike. The strike was in response to failed contract negotiations between refinery workers and refinery owner Chevron. The company said that operations will continue as normal and doesn't foresee any supply chain disruptions. An expert in the industry with AAA said, quote, if it goes offline, it will definitely have an impact on our supply. End quote. Quote of the year right there, I might add. <laughs> if we have, <laughs> if the refinery stops, there will be an impact on supply. That's, but I'll, That's some words of wisdom right yeah, there. All jokes aside. Yeah, this is, if you're a worker striking, this would be the perfect time to try and hit them where it hurts. But I don't really see Chevron bending to the whims of whatever union comes their way. Absolutely. And and this is just kind of one of those things where, okay, you know, we, we hear you. Now let's get back to work. Mm-hmm. But ladies and gentlemen, we did it. You did it. You listened to an entire episode of Basin Breakdown. Well, that is if you're still listening. Some of you tend to tune out, and that's okay, because sometimes the content's not for you. Thankfully, Rare Petro, specifically www.rarepetro.com, has an extensive catalog of information, podcasts, video interviews, anything really. We generate a lot of content, so if you didn't enjoy this, hey, you can go to our website and find something that you will enjoy for sure. But other than that, this has been Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 